My name is Matthew Taylor. I'm the Chief Executive of the RSA here in London. While we have faced challenges before, this one is different. Stay at home, protect lives, and then you will be doing your part. What I want to know is just how could and just how should the world change after this pandemic? So that's the question I'm putting to leading experts. It feels like it's life and death for people's businesses, their jobs, their hopes for the future. Renowned thinkers. All you want is a hug, to be honest with you. If you're living alone in this era, there are no hugs. And global leaders. China and the United States are going to emerge from this crisis significantly diminished. Welcome to Bridges to the Future, Responses to COVID-19. Well, I'm delighted to be joined by Masha Gessen, who is a writer, an activist, a campaigner. But Masha, how would you describe yourself? I wouldn't actually describe myself as an activist or a campaigner now. I have been in the past. I was a member of ACT UP all that long time back. I was an organizer with the protests in Moscow in 2011-2012. But right now I'm a writer and a journalist. I work at The New Yorker. I teach at Bard College here in New York State and I write books. And your new book is Surviving Autocracy, which I've just read, and it's fantastic. And there's so much there for us to discuss. So let's get straight into it. Masha, let me ask you the question that we ask everybody on this podcast. So Masha Gessen, how do you think the world could and how do you think the world should change after this pandemic? That's a great question. And I've been writing and thinking a lot about it. So how the word could and should change, you know, early on, We had this moment when we were talking a lot about inventing new ways of doing things, inventing ways to teach classes on Zoom, inventing ways to work remotely. And I'm highly skeptical of the inventiveness of this moment. I think mostly we've invented ways to do stuff without putting on pants. But I think that there are really huge questions that if we choose to face them, we could answer well, and that could move us forward. A question I began with learning to teach on Zoom, what can we learn from that? Can we learn ways of making education more accessible and equitable, especially in this country? Or can we learn ways to continue the profit-making inaccessible model of education, but just much more cheaply by renting out the real estate and having all the adjuncts work on Zoom? More broadly, but in a similar vein, what can we learn about our interconnectedness, both to one another and to nature from this pandemic? So far, I think we haven't learned a lot. So far, we have failed, at least in this country, to have a conversation about the coronavirus that goes beyond sort of basic concepts of individual action, individual responsibility, and individual liberty which is how the great masks debate, which shouldn't be debated at all, is being framed right now. And we haven't talked nearly enough about how essential solidarity and collective action and conceiving of ourselves as a society is essential to our health, 
the public health is the public's health. So the way we could change is we could face these questions and realize that we're only as healthy as our sickest member and act accordingly. But the way we could change is that we could ignore all that and just become sicker and meaner and more isolated and have less solidarity. What do you think then, Masha, will be the determinants of whether the positive aspects of this coronavirus, which have included a greater recognition of the lives of certain disadvantaged groups and key workers. I realize it's a very mixed picture in America, but in places that have taken it seriously, actually quite an act of solidarity as people have done the right thing in order to protect their fellow citizens, a renewed understanding of the importance of good government. All of this kind of stuff might suggest to us we would take positive lessons out of it, but you also talked about the dangers. What is your sense? Is it simply going to be a matter of who wins the next American presidential election? Or what else do you think will determine whether or not we come out of this with a positive or a negative momentum? I think a lot of the work is up to the media. We're seeing an absolutely extraordinary moment here now with the protests, which are sustained, which are everywhere in big cities and small towns all over this country, literally all over this country, but which also show really a new understanding of solidarity, both in their everydayness, where if you look at the protests, and I don't go every day, but I debrief my daughter and her friends who do go every day, and they talk about how everyone in the protests, at least in New York City, wears a mask, how there are people all over the place handing out hand sanitizer, snacks. There's a real ethos of interdependency and mutual care in these protests that is directly related to the experience of the pandemic. It's really up to us journalists and writers and public intellectuals to articulate that practice and to make sure that it stays with us in our thinking and language. And did you see this coming? I mean, obviously not the murder of George Floyd, but, you know, Black Lives Matter as a movement, I think a couple of months ago had 25% support or something in the population. And that's now gone up to, I think, kind of way over half, two thirds of the population expressing support for that. Is that something that, that when you look at it, you think, oh, well, I understand why that happened? Or, or does it, in a sense, underline the contingent nature of political movement? It's both. I do understand how it happened. And I think, you know, this is not something that, it's, it's something that is explicable, actually, through sort of traditional political science thinking and something that we have talked about. And there was talk about it at the beginning of the pandemic as well. Times of crisis are always also a time of political opportunity. And in particular, there are times when ideas that appear marginal can quickly become assimilated into the mainstream. We actually saw that in this country at the beginning of the pandemic with ideas such as universal health care, which in the United States, insanely, was a marginal idea, really, I'd say, until the beginning of March. And then within the first couple of weeks of the pandemic, we saw that it became completely assimilated. I mean, it's still in the sphere of legitimate debate, but it is certainly not perceived, I think, by any plurality of the population as a marginal idea. We saw something similar happen to the idea of, I mean, it wasn't articulated as such, but the idea of universal basic income. A completely marginal idea 
that suddenly was reflected in actual American legislation in March. The relief package reflected a completely new approach for Americans to legislating welfare by basically sending out $1,200 to every American regardless of their employment status. That's an absolutely extraordinary step that would have been a completely crazy idea. Now, there are a couple of problems with that. One is that it wasn't reflected as such in the media, and that's probably one of the reasons that it hasn't been sustained as an idea, and we haven't seen a similar repeat relief package. But with the protests, it's the same kind of phenomenon, and it's not unexpected. Ideas that were key to a small part of the population, but that were perceived as marginal by the majority, such as defunding the police, abolishing the police, and Black Lives Matter more generally, become completely mainstream and enter the sphere of legitimate debate very, very quickly. That said, you know, I have covered both successful and unsuccessful revolutions. And you see that in both. You see that sudden, just like overwhelming and completely exhilarating shift in opinion. And it feels exactly the same whether the revolution is successful or unsuccessful. And we don't know how it's going to end. So it's very interesting because at the outset of the crisis, we developed a way of thinking at the RSA, looking at the relationship between crisis and change. And we argued in broad terms, looking at the contrast between World War One and World War Two, the contrast between the AIDS epidemic and the global financial crisis, and looking at why it was that the AIDS epidemic, a terrible tragedy, but yet what emerged from that was a positive movement towards treatment, towards leadership in the gay community, towards transformation of public attitudes towards the LGBT community, in contrast to the shattered hopes that came out of the financial crisis. And our argument would be that there are three things which seem to be particularly important in determining, not determining, but conditioning whether or not crisis leads to change. The first is, was there demand for change and capacity for change before the crisis, because change doesn't kind of come from nowhere, doesn't emerge from nowhere in the crisis. Secondly, during the crisis, is that demand strengthened? And in certain ways, do we see the future prefigured? In certain responses to the crisis, do we see the future prefigured? And then thirdly, and critically, and that I think was the problem in 2007-8 coming out of the global financial crisis, are there the political coalitions in place and the practical policy ideas and social innovations ready to take advantage of that moment when people are open to new ideas and willing even to make sacrifices in pursuit of getting things back on track? And it seems as though, you're, for me, your account of Black Lives Matter fits that in an extent, that there was a pre-existing demand that people were aware of. There was some capacity. There was a movement. There was a brand. Then this happens at a moment of crisis where people have a heightened sense of sensitivity and solidarity. And it speaks to people's sense of what's going on in the crisis, but also their desire for change. But then critically... It turns into a broader political coalition. And as you said, it starts to turn into concrete demands around police reform. So it it feels like a kind of case study of the way in which crisis can accelerate change. But as you said, you've seen revolutions go wrong as well. What then would you say are the dangers of some of the advances that you've been we've been talking about being reversed? 
Well, first, if I can just put a spotlight for a second on part of what she said, because I've been thinking a lot about the similarities between the AIDS activist movement and what we're seeing now. I mean, there aren't a whole lot of similarities, but I think that one part of the experience that has really stood out to me was that the AIDS activist movement was largely fueled by the anger and energy of people who really and truly were shocked that their lives were disposable. ACT UP was made up primarily, not exclusively, but primarily of wealthy white gay men who, even though they were gay and for that reason were sort of marginalized, but a lot of them were in the closet before they got sick, felt entitled, felt like they had every reason to expect this society and this government to care about them. And then they discovered that it didn't. And Larry Kramer spoke very eloquently about it, that he was a rich man, he was an educated man, he was a privileged man, and he never experienced being disposable until he encountered AIDS. And in the last few months, Americans have had the experience of learning that all of our lives are disposable. All of our lives are less important than the stock market, as far as this government is concerned. And all of our lives are less important than Trump's re-election. And so for a lot of Americans, that is not a shocking discovery. A lot of Americans, the people who stood at the founding of the Black Lives Matter movement, have known since they were born, and their parents knew, that the government will not care for them, that this society considers them disposable, that their lives don't matter. And I think that this incredible sense of solidarity has to do with this visceral ability to relate, to understand that your life is disposable. We've all had a slight taste of something that a part of the American population lives with constantly. And to answer your broader question, I agree. I think this almost looks like a case study. So what will it depend on? I think partly it will depend on, well, obviously the results of the November election, but the results of the November election will depend on whether this moment can be sustained. And I really worry about it. It's June, right? And the election isn't until November. And this is an accelerated year in history. Who knows what else is going to happen and how else we're going to change. Well, so that brings us neatly on to number 45. I interviewed John Keane the other day, and he refers to Donald Trump as number 45 because he thinks this is A, means he doesn't have to say his name, and B, it reminds us that there will be a number 46. I mean, your book is a, a wonderful book, Surviving Autocracy, written in such a vivid, powerful, shocking way. But I mean, I consider it to be a rude question, but there's been so much written about Trump. So for somebody who hasn't picked up the book, and I said, well, look, this is a book about the fact that Trump is kind of deranged and ridiculous and that what he's doing is incredible and that somehow we're allowing it to happen, I think they'd kind of go, well, I know that. And I would have to say to them, yeah, but it's different. You need to read this book. It's slightly different. But I'm interested in what motivated you to want to state this, because it isn't, of course, an unknown set of arguments. That's a good question. And like when I'm asked, you know, why I wanted to write a book, it's always like, oh, I don't know, because I, I was temporarily insane. I mean, this, writing this book was miserable. But I think that what I aspire to do and what I hope I succeeded in doing, at least to some extent, is actually what my intellectual hero, Balint Magyar, does. He's the Hungarian political scientist whose framework of autocracy I use in this book. And every time I hear him speak or I read his books and articles, I have this incredible experience of the world coming into focus. It always feels exactly the same. It's like, he says something and, or he writes something, and I think, well, 
of course, of course, that's obvious. That's clearly what we're looking at. But it only becomes obvious the moment he says it. And yes, we've been staring at the thing for a long time, but he gives it sort of the conceptual framework that makes it actually clear. And I think a lot of the really great work that people have done in describing the Trump presidency, you know, both my colleagues at The New Yorker and my friends at the Trump Inc. podcast, which I think is the single best ongoing work of journalism on the Trump presidency, a lot of what we have done is kind of document the ongoing outrages. And yes, we're all too familiar with them. They probably don't need repeating, but I think they still could use some additional framing and conceptualizing. And especially because living in Trump's America is such an experience in just walking through haze that if I'm not crazy to think that I have a pretty good flashlight here and I can actually shine it and make things feel less hazy and maybe give people some tools for avoiding haze and sort of continuing to live through this nightmare, then I should try to do it. I mentioned John Keane before, because when I was reading your book, it made me think a lot of John Keane's most recent book, which is about despotism. And I guess if I was to sum up his argument, and you know, he spent his life writing about democracy, it is firstly not to underestimate despotism as a form of government. That is to say, he's not an apologist for it, but he says that we consistently underestimate it and we consistently overestimate the attraction of real, actual liberal democracy. And therefore, we underestimate the fight that is involved in renewing liberal democracy sufficiently so that the public will prefer it to clever despotism. Obviously, you've written a lot about Vladimir Putin, and I'm interested in whether you see Trump as a despot in the kind of Putin mold, or is he a very different kind of phenomenon? I think there are some key similarities, and I try to be a little bit careful about that just because I spent so many years writing about Putin that those are the words that I have, those are the ideas that I have. I think that somebody who probably spent years writing about Silvio Berlusconi or Benjamin Netanyahu or Viktor Orban has a different set of skills or a different pair of eyeglasses that help them see this clearly. So there might be better comparisons. I just think this is a pretty useful one. And the experience of writing about Putin is pretty useful to being able to write about Trump. And I think, yes, in some key ways, they are similar, even though temperamentally, they're incredibly different, right? It's hard to imagine two men who are more emotionally each other's opposite than Putin and Trump. But they both believe that political power is control. They both believe in a kind of performance of power that's raw power, that's brutal power. They both believe in the unbreakable bond of money and political power. And they both, I think, see sort of the ideal government as one man surrounded by a bunch of psychophants, not how they would phrase it, but surrounded by other men whose money and power in turn are dependent on his goodwill and his distribution of money and power to them. And a kind of top-down and what they believe is an efficient government. I want to just explore the question of how democracy needs to respond. So I could talk to you for hours about Trump and Putin. It's a fascinating subject. But because we haven't got that much time, at the end of your book, there's a kind of recognition that democracy needs to be reformed and the case for it needs to be renewed. It's not good enough to be disgusted with despotism or horrified by Trump. And 
going back to where we started our conversation, Nasha, which is the relationship between crisis and change. So, you know, I know this is kind of very schematic and excuse me for throwing my ideas at you again, but you can broadly look at the history of Europe and North America over the last 70 or 80 years in relation to a set of crises and regimes. So you have the crises of the 30s and the Second World War, which leads to the regime that people would call the post-war settlement, which when we look back on it, looks quite benign now in terms of economic growth and relatively low levels of inequality and relative political consensus. That starts to break down and it's kind of killed off by the oil crisis, by the dollar ceasing to underpin a kind of fixed exchange rate mechanism. So you then move into a kind of period of economic turmoil out of which neoliberalism finally emerges as the kind of dominant paradigm. And then neoliberalism motors on, but also generates all sorts of kind of problems and resistances. And then the global financial crisis, it doesn't destroy neoliberalism, neoliberalism continues, but it kind of damages its kind of legitimacy and its momentum and populism then starts to grow as the kind of most dynamic form of government, you know, with all its problems, but yet in a sense, it becomes the kind of the most dynamic form in that period. Now, it seems to me that COVID could be the end of this relatively short period of kind of populist success, partly because the populists on the whole, not universally, but on the whole, have been very, very bad in their response to COVID. The question therefore arises, what is the system that could emerge after COVID? What would be the characteristics of that? And so I'm interested to ask you, Master, I'm sorry, it's such a long question, but what do you think liberal democracies need to do? What is the kind of new regime they need to create in order to be more attractive to the public and more able to beat off the populists and the despots? Well, to start with, I would get rid of the term liberal democracy. I think that's a hell of an assumption. And I don't think it's an assumption that is inherent in the idea of democracy. And part of the reason I object to it is that I think it privileges thinking in terms of individual freedoms, individual liberty, and it also implies that the systems that we have created to facilitate what we think might be democracy, such as elections, parliaments, systems of checks and balances, are in fact democracy. And they're not. They are things that may allow democracy to happen. Democracy is the government of the governed. We have never been able to achieve the government of the governed in any country in the world. We have only been able to move in that direction by creating institutions that seem to facilitate movement in that direction. So I think, first of all, I would say we have to start to revert to thinking about democracy as an aspiration as an ideal, as something that is never achieved, but that in working toward, we create better societies. And then instead of focusing narrowly on institutions such as elections, which is not to say that elections aren't important, it's that elections aren't democracy. Democracy is what happens between elections, or that might happen between elections. Sometimes it doesn't happen between elections. In part, it depends on the elections, but in part, it depends on on a lot of other factors. And I also think we need to move out of this habit of speaking of democracy as a society that exists primarily to guarantee people's individual freedoms, which, again, is not to say that I'm an enemy of individual freedoms. I'm an enemy of that kind of thinking. I think that in thinking about democracy, we're much better off thinking about the kind of society we want to live in, the reason we get together to act politically. 
For example, the problem, of course, with giving that kind of answer is that it becomes very, very abstract and vague. So let me give you a specific example in having that kind of conversation. One of the things that are so exciting about the current moment in the United States, and by the current moment, I mean literally the last three weeks, is that we're having, or we're at least going in the direction of having really fundamental conversations about what we do as a society and how we constitute ourselves as a society. And when I said that I'm excited that topics such as defunding the police or abolishing the police are becoming subjects of legitimate debate, you responded by saying, oh, so, you know, police reform has become a topic of conversation. And that's a really interesting distinction because, you know, saying police reform is basically placing it in that context of existing institutions of what we think of as of liberal democracies that just need to be made better. And I think we need a much more fundamental reinvention. We actually need to ask the question of, do we need the police? And even more basically, what do we get together for? When we create our local governments, do we create them primarily in order to police ourselves, in order to have a bunch of men with guns looking for transgressions and ways to punish them, which is how local government in the United States is currently constituted. In a lot of places, the bulk of a city budget is actually the police budget. And so that means that is our politics, right? We get together and pool our resources in order to enforce discipline. But maybe that's not what we get together for. Maybe we get together in order to pool our resources to educate our children, to make sure that all of us are living as well as we can possibly live, to make sure that everyone is as happy as they can possibly be, to make sure that people who are in mental health crises get the help that they need, to make sure that we have nice parks and good outdoor spaces, all the things that we can get together and pay taxes for that are not the police. And then, you know, maybe we even get together to envision a better society, to envision a nonviolent society in which the subject of police begins to kind of die off and maybe become irrelevant. And that is a much bigger subject than police reform. So that is a very long-winded way of basically answering your question by saying that I think in order to save democracy, we really, really have to reinvent democracy and set aside some of our assumptions, including the assumption that democracy equals liberal democracy. Well, Masha, thank you so much for that answer. And just today, I've been thinking about just these issues, and I'm sure I'll discard this idea soon. But my way of thinking about what we need now is I use the phrase, the reflexive age, that we need to live in a time when our capacity to understand the systems which govern our lives is much greater, where leaders understand the inherent perils with leadership and the pathologies of leadership. And that's an inherent part of being a leader is to understand its pathologies and dangers. That we have social solidarity and belonging, but we also understand that belonging itself is something that we need to be careful with because it too generates its own pathologies. You belong to one tribe and not to another. And that finally, our own individual aspirations, if we read our behavioral economics, our social psychology, we understand that true autonomy comes from an awareness of the frailties of human nature. It's not just about getting what you want, as it were. And that now the problem with that is it sounds like an incredibly intellectual exercise, but it seems to me that democracy to survive, it needs to inculcate this kind of capacity for reflection and reflexivity in the population. Is that a hopelessly naive ambition? To finish with this last question, Masha, but is that a hopelessly naive ambition? No, I think it's essential. I mean, I think that we're using different words to describe similar 
desires and similar perceptions of similar needs, which is, I keep saying, sort of, we have to negotiate, we have to think about why we get together, we have to set aside our assumptions. You are talking about it in terms of reflexivity and a kind of a continuous intellectual questioning, but that's, it's all about reinvention. And I think it is about setting aside this idea that is particularly strong in the United States, that we have a perfect set of institutions and democracy consists of building them and then kind of turning away while they work, which is just a basic misconception of how institutions work. They don't work in a vacuum. But it's also, I think, setting aside the idea that democracy is institutions. It's not. It's, it's us all the time. Master Gaston, thank you so much for spending this time with us. Thank you for having me. That's it for this episode of Bridges to the Future. But we'll be back with more insights and analysis very soon. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please tell someone about it. And we would really appreciate it if you took just two minutes to leave us a rating or review in your podcast app. And that's not it. The RSA is commissioning online events, essays, blog posts to help make sense of what's happening right now and in the months to come. Also, the RSA Fellowship is a global network of problem solvers. We'd love you to join our community today to stay connected, inspired and motivated in the months ahead. You can learn more about the Fellowship or the work that we're doing on the pandemic and the world after it by going to the rsa.org.uk or clicking the link in our bio. But for now, thanks from me, Matthew Taylor, and my producer, Craig Templeton-Smith.